I'm your host, Vincent Victor Roche. It's one day after the equinox and raining like the Dickens here in New York City, and I'm so pleased to bring you my conversation with Paul Robichaud about a figure who I would say doesn't get that much play these days in occult circles, and maybe should get some more. I don't know. Paul Robichaud and I are going to be talking about Pan, that horned god, that split-foot fellow who frolics through the forests and might be found in dark grottos. It's a lovely chat, and I'm excited to bring it to you. And I don't really have any other announcements except that, you know, normally with this show we do a thing where it's like, you know, the full conversation is like an hour and a half, two hours, something like that. And, you know, a little bit of it goes up for free and the rest of it's available on the Patreon. Um, when I talked to, to Professor Robichaud, he was a bit pressed for time, so we were only able to talk long enough to get basically an episode in. And so something else will be going up on the Patreon later this week. That will be the first installment of the Witch Hassle Audiobook Magical Library, a treasure trove of classic magical texts read for you so that you can let them wash over you at your leisure when you're doing something else, maybe going to the gym, doing the dishes, something like that. You know, so you don't have to stare so hard down the barrel of a text of something that might have been written in 1665. Instead, you get to let it osmotically soak into your subconscious to be withdrawn later for your use and erudition. I'm excited to start doing it. And I hope you're excited to start having me do it for you to have. On to the interview now. Uh, Paul Robichaud is the chair of the Department of English and Communications at Albertus Magnus College. And he's the author of two books, Pan, The Great God's Modern Return, and Making the Past Present, David Jones, The Middle Ages, and Modernism. He's also the author of a number of scholarly articles and poems. So that's, that's fun. It's always nice to talk to a poet about things. I really enjoyed this chat, and I hope you do too. Okay, so thank you so much for taking the time. Um, when we get started, I, I just, you know, you've got, over the course of this book, you have who Pan has been for so many different people in so many different places. But I, I am curious just to start out, who's Pan to you? Oh, that's a great question. Pan to me is really the uh the embodiment of nature of nature that includes but is beyond us as human beings you know the nature in its in its wild form you know and i think also kind of the wildness in in us as people those those aspects of ourselves that are instinctual that are untamed that are not susceptible or at least resistant to civilization towards um, rules of order and uh, the, the the parts of us that connect most deeply with our place here on on earth really you feel like part of the attraction of pan for folks is this idea of i don't know breaking down the dichotomy of humanity and nature that or do you think that that dichotomy sort of persists i mean he is you know he is half one half the other so there is still that sense of like bifurcation there I think that's part of the attraction. I think as well, and I think it's related to that that bifurcation is Pan is a kind of marginal 
God. You know, he's not he's not one of the all powerful sorts of Olympians in well, in in many of his his representations, he's the the shepherd god, the helper, uh, you know, watching flocks or watching over watching over animals, those kinds of things. And I think I think part of the attraction of Pan is that he's kind of he's connected to us as we see in his, you know, typical form. He's part part human in his form. But he's also kind of at our level, you know, even in even in in his origins in Arcadia, where he started out as the god that shepherds thanked for watching over their flocks. You know, he does. In other words, he's part of our world. He's sort of integrated in in our world, bridging that gap between us um, and nature. So if we think about even thinking about him as as a watcher of flocks, he's protecting the flocks from wolves from wild animals and things like that not necessarily that those are those animals are pan's enemies but that as part of the wild himself he can in some sense you know watch over maybe even have some control over those those forces in nature that threaten us as as people that's interesting because i actually this idea of like negotiating boundaries as opposed to uh, maintaining them in a very strict sense it actually kind of leads into something i want to ask you kind of as uh, it's technically the first thing I wrote down to ask you, and I've just you know we've let it be buried a little bit. But like in the beginning of this book, you you sort of make a an explicit comment about being open to the idea that there are some people who actually still believe in Pan or attempt to have some kind of relationship with Pan. And I think that's fairly rare among historians. This idea of being open to the reality of belief in some way. So I'm curious, like what prompted you to sort of make that welcoming gesture to say, because I think there's, there's sometimes I think some historians especially have some, almost a pressure on them to make sure that they are distant from their material, that there is, you know, a strong sense that like the beliefs of the past, the people of the past, this is in the past, we are all very, you know, secular and logical and rational now, as opposed to folks from days hence. Yeah, uh, well, so I think to to your your point there, I think that 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 is true. That there the consensus in a lot of academic fields tends to be, you know, we are we are rational, contemporary, secular, skeptical people, and in the past, people were essentially less less enlightened than us, and people who hold religious or spiritual beliefs are are in some sense out of date or they're really you know they really belong to a world that the more advanced among us have superseded into the world of uh enlightened skepticism but i think that in recent decades there's started to be a little bit of a pushback um against that in in some fields i mean i'm i'm a i'm a literary scholar by by training um i i teach english and i think that the, there has been a growing awareness at least in english studies of the importance of religious belief in uh, shaping the way writers, poets have kind of thought about and experienced and represented the world, and that it can't just be religious belief can't just be sort of dismissed as extra context, but but sort of integral to a lot of you know major works of of literature. You know, just for example, Paradise Lost by John Milton or those metaphysicals like Herbert Dunn and so on. Um, I think uh, at a more personal level, I've always been really fascinated by Carl Jung's ideas and his focus on the numinous and the experience of the numinous, that kind of encounter with what 
feels very spiritual and meaningful, but also very other, and how that kind of experience or those kinds of encounters have found expression um, in literature, you know, in, in poetry or what what have you. And I think that the encounters with Pan that that I've read, um, you know, some of them uh, kind of came across in, over the years, like, you know, Kenneth Graham, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, very much a, a you know, fictionalized encounter with the numinous, possibly based on some kind of personal mystical experience Graham had. No one seems to know. What I find interesting about that, and maybe we'll we'll talk about this later, but what I find interesting about that is uh, a, a number of critics ha- have really speculated about that. And I think it has to do with the very powerful way Graham gives us the experience of the numinous in that chapter, the Piper, the Gates of Dawn. We sort of, as readers, infer that perhaps there was a personal experience behind it, and and there may may well have been. But I think even reading some things like Robert Ogilvy Crombie's encounters with Pan, which were absolutely real uh, to him, and if you read his uh, his diaries, his experiences were actually much more extensive than what he revealed publicly. And there's no sense at all that he's, as it were, imagining things or that these are these are not real. These are vivid, authentic experiences for him. And so I think that the experience of encountering the numinous is part of our experience. It's part of the human experience, that spiritual or religious awareness. And also that there's it fits with what William James called the varieties of religious experience. Like there, there is a range of experience that I think is hard to study from a really rational, skeptical point of view. And I think it's that range of experience that is perhaps best expressed, you know, imaginatively, right? Like through through art, through literature, through these kinds of accounts of visionary sorts of experiences and so on. But I think that to dismiss that whole dimension of human experience is very limiting. You know, cult- cultures around the world have places for uh, those kinds of spiritual encounters, those kinds of experiences that get labeled mystical because they're very hard to translate into, you know, into language, into argument, into those kinds of things. So, so partly, so it's kind of a big question you're asking about it, but I think partly it's the way that. Um, academics are trained to value rational argument above everything else. And, you know, I think may, maybe maybe one advantage, those of us who who kind of work and and read in in the arts and humanities is that, you know, we're constantly encountering things like painting and poetry that is not necessarily rational, that's not making an argument, but is instead trying to present a vision or express a feeling or convey experience. So I, I see these kinds of encounters of, with Pan as just really you know, part of that broader spectrum of uh, religious experience or encounters with the numinous. I, I, don't think, I don't think they should be dismissed at all. I think they're part of a really fascinating spectrum of human experience. I'm really glad you bring up this idea of argument, because I think there is something fundamental here about, especially like, for example, reading those diary entries where you know, there is no case being made for the experience. It is simply right. like, like here is what happened. It is self-evident in some way. I'm curious because you bring up James. When you look at, say, I don't know, the history of the study of religion or ritual, like for example, Durkheim or or something like that, where there's a sense that the function of religion has a lot to do 
with taking either you know the taboo the disordered the terrifying and putting it in a framework that allows it to become somehow digestible or controllable or or fenced in in some way do you see pan playing a role in that or is pan sort of only half of that because i mean there is there's a strong sense of especially as time goes on a pan of the when we get to say like the 19th century or the early 20th century the sense of pan is the embodiment of a kind of madness so there's sort of a sense of of breaking these containers and ignoring them so where do you see pan kind of fitting into like is uh, i guess i'm i'm inviting you to say was durkheim wrong uh with pan <laughs> feel free to do that we, we you know this is not a, a worship durkheim podcast yet well the time may come yeah i know i i think that's i think that's a really interesting sort of question of, around pan and and so there's that kind of Durkheim perspective. There's also the French poet uh, Charles Peggy had this notion that we we go with re- with religion we go from the mystique, you know, the uh, the authentic experience of the spiritual, the numinous, and it gets translated into politique, you know, the the political certainly, but but also that kind of those kinds of social forms and and so on. And in doing that, often loses the that kind of the experiential basis, like the the meaningfulness of it. I think in the case of Pan, part of Pan's appeal, going back certainly to the 19th century revival, but I think you could make a case for in the ancient world as well, is that he really kind of evades this institutionalizing. Like even in the classical world, Pan's shrines, you know, are off in the cave over there with the nymphs. Um, He's hanging out with Dionysus, the god of wine and ecstasy. Um, he's not really associated very much with the other the other Olympians. And I think the I think Pan, I mean, you you mentioned madness. I think Pan is connected with this kind of madness or frenzy and panic and so on. And you know, if if we think about Pan as in in some way embodying not just the natural world, but that that experience of panic, it, how do you institutionalize that? Like how do you turn that into uh, I don't know, dogma or even ritual, like he, he, it's it's that visceral experience that we have in the moment of fear, of terror, of joy, of ecstasy, of desire. All of those things are really resistant to to being contained in that way. You know, Pan Pan is not a god connected with marriage. He's a god connected with the sudden experience of overpowering lust and desire. Like he's always he's always embodying something that can't quite be contained, you know, to use your word, contained in those social forms. Pan doesn't belong in marriage. Pan doesn't belong in the forum, in in the city. He's he's always kind of beyond all those things. And and I think that is the deep appeal of Pan. Like he and it's really why Pan, you know, is is that connection with the wild, because he's he's what's left over after <laughs> all these other originally inspired, originally experienced things have been made institutional or political or whatever rational in some way I really like that it's kind of reminding me um a poet i used to live with um said something i've i found that i've off quoted which is that love is an excuse for people to go crazy and i it does feel like pan is that embodiment of the excuse almost the uh yeah but I don't think it, my sense from your from your book is that it wasn't always this way. Could you talk a little bit about Pan's, I mean, not origins, but perhaps our earliest sort of record of Pan in Arcadia and like what his role was and the level of 
I dare say, disrespect he would occasionally receive there. So Pan starts out in Arcadia, and the Arcadians, the Arcadian origin is itself meaningful because the Arcadians were really the Greeks who, from the point of view of you know the Athenians, those classical kinds of Greeks we're familiar with, were really like the back of beyond. Like they were, uh, you know, they were hicks. They were country folk who were really stuck kind of in the past. So the ancient Greeks collectively kind of decided or viewed the Arcadians as being the original inhabitants of Peloponnese. They were older than the moon. They didn't really farm as much as the other Greeks, mainly because their territory was not really amenable to farming. So they pastured animals, they hunted. The form of Greek they spoke was closer to Mycenaean Greek than to the classical Greek in Athens. So there's all these associations with with the primitive among the Arcadians. And so the cult of Pan, the earliest evidence we have for it are just little bronze votive statues, images of shepherds typically holding a sheep, and there'll be a little inscription, you know, thank you, Pan, or dedicated to Pan from Aeneas or whoever it might have been. And he he was worshipped um, in different places. He's connected with Mount Lycaon, which is connected to the Arcadian figure of Lycaeus, who ate his children and was transformed into a wolf by Zeus. So he has these kind of wild, savage kind of, kinds of connotations. But late, later writers, thinking about Pan being treated disrespectfully, later writers uh, commented on the way Arcadian hunters would go out. They go out for their day of hunting. Pan was also a god of the hunt, um, a sort of less familiar aspect of of him, but which again connects him with the wild. And if they didn't have a good day hunting, they would come home and they would ritually beat a statue of Pan to kind of punish him in some way. They would they wouldn't use a baseball bat to to do this. They'd use these little lilies, these these squills, which are kind of like a wild onion related to the lily and they would you know gently punish pan for not helping them much in the hunt but i think the fact that that was part of how arcadians engaged with pan if those stories are are true does suggest they saw him kind of at their level not not so much up there in the heights as some sort of powerful divinity out there in space or something but really in their world and he and he's a god who has responsibilities you know he's got to look after their sheep he also has to ensure that they have a successful hunt and if he doesn't do that he's going to get you know a little tap on the shoulder or something in response but but again i think it it points to the way that the pan is very much part of our our world and i think it also and i'm not a classicist so i'm kind of, you know i had to read about this but i think it also raises some questions about what our relationship is to the divine because we tend to in the modern west even if we're living in a more secular age even if we don't come from a kind of religious background we tend to think of worship or our relationship to the divine through a you know millennia plus long kind of christian tradition as something very reverential and um you know putting the worshiper in a, in a very diminished position relative to the divine power. But I think the the beating of Pan's image with squills after a, a bad hunt shows us that there are other ways that people have had of relating to to the gods, and they're not always respectful, you know, and there's, there's a kind of quid pro quo there implied, like, if you're not going to help me hunt my rabbits or whatever I need for dinner, I'm going to give you a good whack with this and hopefully next time you'll you'll help out. So it's it is a less respectful attitude, but I think our whole idea of a respectful and reverential attitude toward the divine is really conditioned by our historical experience, memories of of Christian worship. It's not 
necessarily the only way to to relate to to that. Right. It 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 almost puts me in mind of certain, uh, I guess you would say, folk Catholic practices of, for example, the uh, Saint Anthony statues, where the baby he holds is removable because you can punish Saint Anthony for not doing what you want. Which actually, I'm I'm curious, like. You, you you make the point that he's not sort of an Olympian, really. Where, where would you sort of put him in terms of comparable figures? Is he something closer to like a hero or is he something more like a demigod? Because I mean, like Dionysus, he and Dionysus are, I believe, half brothers in this standard kind of pantheon, right? Am I making that up? Um, Sons sure. of Hermes? Yeah, well, the, the part, so it's a hard, this is a hard question to answer just because Pan's parentage is a really uncertain thing for the ancient Greeks. Like they sort of, they settle on, yeah, they settle on Hermes as Pan's father pretty early on. And the question of Pan's mother is really uncertain. A whole series of candidates, they're basically all nymphs, are sort of suggested by different writers. By later antiquity, a nymph called Penelope, who's often confused with Penelope, Odysseus's wife, is often presented as that. The Homeric hymn, she's the daughter of of Dryop, the uh, this mountain god in Arcadia. But he he's a god, but he's a god who is not. He doesn't live on Olympus. He lives down here. He lives in Arcadia. He he inhabits, or at least haunts, in some sense, the the cavern shrines and and places he he's there being worshipped. So I think yeah. So what what is Pan? Pan is a god, but he's not one of the Olympian gods. He's not a kind of transcendent god who's beyond all of us, at least in these earlier formations. And one of the interesting transformations that Pan undergoes in later antiquity is reflected in the Orphic hymn, which is one of a series of hymns to the pagan gods, some of them quite local to um, Anatolia. And they seem to have been connected with these these mystery cults, these kind of religious groups where there would be initiation, there would be, you know, it's kind of esoteric spiritual teachings that were communicated and, you know, private rites rather than big public worship and so on that was sort of met the, the needs for a more personal kind of spiritual experience and relationship with the gods. In the Orphic hymn, Pan is presented partly in his usual uh, shepherd god self, but he's also presented as the god of all. And that is, depending on your perspective, either a misunderstanding or a deliberate pun on Pan's name, which derives from a word relating to pasture, but is a, a homonym for the Greek word for all, which is Pan, like we have like Pan America, Pandemic, all those things. And in that tradition, in the Orphic tradition, Pan becomes this cosmic god. He's identical with Zeus in the Orphic hymn. And so he develops this dual aspect that kind of mirrors the the bifurcation you mentioned earlier, where he's part animal in form, he's part human in form. In the later tradition, we have the pastoral god of shepherds, sort of the helper who's down here with us. And then we have this kind of transformation of understanding of Pan's nature as, as this kind of all-powerful god. And, and the Orphic hymn presents him as, as a sort of force in nature that binds together all the other elements. Like it's it is really interesting how how he's conceived of there. Like he's almost a, almost that fifth element that holds everything else together. He's identical with that in, in some way. So what Pan is and and how 
Pan's godhood is thought of changes over time. And one just related to that, one one thing I've been thinking about more recently has been this idea that Pan originally might not have had a form at all. We think of Pan as having goat legs and, and a human body, little horns and a beard. But one of the interesting things about that is that form only appears after Pan starts being worshipped in Athens in the fourth century. And it's the Athenians who start depicting him that way. And after that happens, we start to see images of Pan from Arcadia and elsewhere depicted in that way. But there are no images of Pan of any kind from Arcadia before he starts being worshipped and represented in Athens. And so some archaeologists have speculated that Pan might in fact have been what they call aniconic, like not a god with an image at all, which I think raises some interesting possibilities thinking about Pan as a god without a specific form. Like that seems more like a, a, a kind of cosmic god or a god who could be everywhere and 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 be all things. It may also connect to that primordial experience of panic where, you know, when we experience panic, it's partly we don't know, we don't know what it is that we're afraid of. You know, like we're just suddenly seized by fear, but what are we afraid of? Well, if the source of pan panic is pan and pan has no image, that kind of corresponds, I think, neatly to that experience of panic where we don't know the source. If there's a snake, I can jump out of its way or run in the other direction. But if I don't know what's making me afraid, that that experience is more really more terrifying in some ways. And that's the kind of experience that Pan's presence was thought to to induce. I'm curious, like, how does that tie into say, because I mean, there's it's not just that it's Pan by him, like if we give Pan a form, it's not Pan often by himself. It's Pan with nymphs. It's Pan with the, um, I'm actually not sure how you say this out loud, Pan Panes? Panis? Pan Panis, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Could you actually, because yeah. I, I feel like people might not be as familiar with the Panis in particular. Could you talk about them a little bit? Yeah. So Pan is, when he's depicted, you know, in, in stone reliefs, uh, in, in caverns, he's, he's usually depicted with nymphs. He's sometimes shown with Hermes. Dionysus sometimes makes an appearance. Um, he's, he's always connected with these kind of beings who are not not themselves gods, but are sort of semi-divine, like nymphs, the these the female spirits of nature, or their male equivalents, who are sometimes satyrs, sometimes uh, fauns, or these panes. And the the panes are basically little mini pans. They're kind of, as much as I don't want to say it, they're like mini me's of pan. You know, they're like little duplications, and um, some of them, some of them had their own names and. They were sort of they they seem to have been in part localized versions of Pan. So they they might have a little name attached to them, and they're sort of the version of Pan that's worshipped in a particular place. But they do seem part of this deeper, I don't know, this deeper sense of Pan as overseeing or accompanied by all of these other little nature spirits that are connected to the wilderness, that are again not not these big powerful kinds of transcendent gods but local spirits that we could appeal to for help we could perhaps encounter in some you know in some visionary way or we could celebrate at the local shrine but yeah the pennies are really just little duplications of pan and even in some of the early artwork like some of these attic vases will depict what might be pan might be panes or these or fawns or satyrs and they'll be 
several of them, and they'll be watching the goddess of spring emerging from the earth. And I, I think it's an interesting question. I don't have, I definitely don't have all the the answers on on this one. I'm not sure what that duplication is is meaning to convey. I mean, I think in one sense, it suggests Pan isn't tied down to any any one place or any one thing. It may be suggesting, you know, that idea of Pan as as meaning meaning all the pan is sort of everywhere. But uh, yeah, I think it's really fascinating. You get the sense at all that that might be a step closer to to being human as well. Because I mean, I, I'm what it's I mean, I, you're reluctant to compare it to the mini me situation. And now I'm <laughs> feeling reluctant. But like the thing that is coming to mind as a comparison is how many people in the last, I don't know, four or five, six years have been really uh, quite taken with the despicable me films and sort of made memes of the the minions as you know, basically self-insert characters i am i am just like this minion and that it is upset about going to its job or something like that do you, right. do you feel like that the panes might have been i not i don't want to say the minions of their day but do you get that kind of self-insert sense at all well i i don't know i don't know if they're the, so much the self-insert as i don't know if they're kind of representing sort of us in pan's world so much as conveying a sense that pan is pan is accessible not just sort of directly but also through all of these little kinds of minions that he has all these little satyrs and fawns and and you know panes i feel like if we we're going to put panes in english it would be something like panlings you know like little pans that they're they're all around us that they're doing things in nature or they're constantly celebrating and feasting and drinking and, and carrying on and they're they're really these these embodiments of these kinds of instinctual forces and natural powers that there's this there's a sense that there's unceasing activity like they're always dancing they're always feasting and they do rest so i guess unceasing activity isn't quite right but but they're they're resting the same way nature rests they're active the same way nature nature is active but so I guess I would see it more as the the way an aspect of the way Pan is is accessible and kind of omnipresent um, in nature, um, in a way again that the the other Greek gods often are not. Right. It's almost more like say when you see an individual mushroom in the woods or a bunch of mushrooms, this is in fact just a small local expression of a much larger mycelial network that is under the earth and sort of. Yeah. I, actually, that's a great. Yeah, I think that's a great comparison. Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, I think so, that's a good way to look at it. So what put me in mind of that is, of course, the the classic comment about mushrooms, which is that you can't kill them in a way that means something. And I am curious about the death of Pan. How are we to really orient ourselves to, because this idea of like the, the god who dies is not necessarily unheard of in, in even Greek mythology, right? There's Dionysus as well. But is, is that, should we similarly sort of see that as a kind of like, I don't know, spring narrative or is there something else kind of going on specifically with pan's death yeah pan's death is a little different from these other kinds of deaths so in the case of of dionysus in the case of these other gods like tamas or adonis we have these these gods who are who die and are reborn and you know in the case of tamas and adonis they very much are are gods of youth and spring they're killed and then they're reborn the following year and this was part of their this was incorporated into their mythology and their worship so clearly part of the popular kind of cults or devotions around these gods the death of pan is different in a couple of ways one is that it does not appear 
really connected to Pan's popular worship in the ancient world, or the way that ordinary pagans in the classical world thought about Pan. It appears in a story uh, recorded by Plutarch. So it's a literary death, if I can put it that way. It's it's It occurs in the story reported by Plutarch, where he relates that a sailor overheard from an island this cry that Pan was dead. Pan, great Pan is dead. And he was so struck by this that he shared this, this terrible news. He heard this wailing from the island, and he believed this signaled the death of Pan. And this took place in the reign of the emperor Tiberius. And so this news comes to the emperor, and he's really curious to learn about this Pan fellow and what's going on here. So his counselors look into the story, and they tell him that, yes, in, in their opinion, Pan has in fact died. There are a couple of problems with this story. One of them, again, is the connection or disconnect between that sort of literary historical record and what is reported elsewhere. Because a century later, um, a Greek travel writer named Posanias, who sort of wandered around Greece and he described what he saw and and you know provided local myths, religious practices, things like that. When he, he went to Greece, uh, the temples or rather shrines to Pan were still active in Arcadia. Uh, the local peasants reported hearing Pan's pipes deep in the woods. There was no awareness that anything had changed at all. So there seems to have been first this disconnection between this account given by Plutarch and you know the, the sort of worship of Pan on the ground. Like that just kept going. But because it's in a written source, the story of Pan's death did did gain some currency, and it was interpreted by Christians uh, in different ways. And this was actually one of the the things researching the book I found really fascinating. You had, on the one hand, these church historians like Eusebius, who very gleefully interpreted the story, given its occurrence in Tiberius's reign, as indicating the death of paganism and the triumph of Christ. So, so this is what the story meant. Um, the, the pagan world is gone and the Christian world is here and it's replaced it. So it was further evidence of that. And the, there is that tradition uh, sort of through uh, later Christian writings, but there's also another tradition or, or really other traditions about this. Some Christian writers like, um, well, we'll say Christian writers, but the, the French writer Rabelais, who may or may not have been a devout Catholic, he might have been an atheist, no one really knows because his his writing is so, it, I, no one knows really what the tone ultimately is when he, he writes these things. But for Rabelais, Pan and Christ were identical, that in fact, the death of Pan was a kind of pagan misperception of what was really the death of Christ. And after Christianity sort of spreads around, people realized that this was actually Christ who was crucified. And he's not hes not alone in this. The, the poet John Milton, kind of going to the other end of, of uh, the life cycle, in his, in his poem about Christ's nativity, he has his, his shepherds thinking that Pan has been born, but actually it's Christ. They just don't know this yet because they're shepherds and they don't, they don't know very much. So there, there are these different ways um, Christian Europe has of thinking about Pan's death. One is that it prefigures the death of paganism and the triumph of Christianity. The other is that it actually, Pan, Pan is Christ in some way. <laughs> and 
I think it's it's kind of it's a sort of extreme example of the way over the centuries European writers and thinkers would find ways of allowing you know pagan literature, pagan gods, and things to survive in some way or another. In other words, if Pan is really Christ, well, you know we can we can keep kind of using him in our poems and our art, and you know he's you know there are ways of looking at him that are actually not you know as uh, as an evil spirit. The way Eusebius might have have done. So it's possible different different uh, writers like Robert Graves and others have sort of speculated that uh, the sailor in the ancient world that Plutarch writes might have just misheard uh, the Greek, and it might have been something like "Great Great Thamos has died," and that in fact the sailor's name was Thamos, and that he was not actually being addressed, but that he was overhearing a chant. It's hard to know what really happened, or or if in fact anything happened. The story possibly is is fictional but um so a very different kind of of death than that of uh say Dionysus or um Adonis or Tammuz but it does it does make Pan unique in that he's the the one ancient god who just is reported dying you know there's nothing after that he's just dead and yet ordinary people seem not to have even been aware of this little story that is it almost has a tabloid kind of aspect to it or something but right like with Pan being kind of this bridging figure for Christianity's, you know, European hegemony, like, is that, do you see it as primarily kind of just that question in like the Renaissance association of Pan with Christ? Do you see that as primarily just kind of like, this is how we bridge these things? Or is there sort of a larger concept of like Pan being Christ-like in, in other ways? Is there more sort of, is there more to it than that, I guess, is the question. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's, I think it's, uh, I think that's a really interesting question about the the sort of rediscovery of Pan. One thing we might notice, I think, is that uh, if you if we're familiar with Christian iconography, Christ is the good shepherd, right? And and he's depicted, you know, in stained glass with a, a shepherd's crook. Um, that's why, you know, if we, you think about those the Christian churches that have bishops, they have that big crook, and the crook is meant to symbolize a shepherd's crook, and it's this idea of Christ as the shepherd. And Pan, of course, is also a, a shepherd god. He's, he's a god who looks after flocks the same way Christ is said to look after flocks and so on. So there are, the, there are these kind of they're these suggestive, I, I wouldn't say perhaps theologically suggestive, but poetically suggestive parallels between them. And I think that I, I think that those parallels, the fact that um, Pan's death supposedly happens in the reign of Tiberius, just as uh, Christ's crucifixion happens in the reign of Tiberius, they were suggestive to to European writers, and they could kind of fit into this larger tradition of looking at pagan figures, pagan poetry, as in some way prefiguring Christianity, prefiguring Christ. So just a, a famous example of this is the way Virgil's poetry was continually read all through the Middle Ages, because Virgil was believed to have included a pagan prophecy of Christ, the, the son of the great virgins shall reign, was taken as prefiguring Christianity. So the Middle Ages and and you know Christian Renaissance had ways of looking at pagan texts that they didn't see as necessarily contradicting the you know hegemonic Christianity that that you mentioned, but in fact prefiguring it, anticipating it in some way. And I think that these these versions of Pan in the Renaissance kind of fit into that larger story, which is an interesting story in itself. 
but yeah so so yeah that bridging figure the way the way other other pagan figures were as well i mean think of like virgil the poet leading dante through hell and purgatory and heaven you know it's it's a way of it's a way of saying you know virgil's all right he's pagan but he's all right <laughs> right there's almost like a psychopompic kind of it's almost like the hermes aspect of pan is coming back in some way but yeah, it, yeah. it's like it's like on the other end of you know as like christianity starts to kind of recede i mean i think ideologically it's still very much you know i mean it's at, like extant it is a religion that can currently exists but like there's a sense that its hegemony kind of starts to recede Right. Uh, this idea of the cosmic pan, I think, has more of a resurgence. And you have a, a lovely quote from Somerset Maugham, um, another name that I, I rarely say out loud, and so I do not know if I'm doing that one right, uh, saying, um, God went out oddly enough with cricket and beer and pan came in. And so do you see that as another kind of bridging moment that pan becomes the bridge into, I guess you would say, the 20th century? Or is that is is the character different now? Is there something new happening i think that the the decline of institutional christianity in the face of darwin in the face of you know the more kind of materialistic secular culture that starts really becoming dominant in in the 19th century and the rise of pan both as a as a literary figure and as a, a figure that becomes starts to become appealing to you know, occultists and pagans and and so on. The two, I think, are are really inseparable. And so, one way to kind of think about Pan's appearance as, for example, you know, that numinous guardian of nature that we encounter in uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn is that he's he's filling he's filling a place that a few generations before, you know, would would have been filled by Christianity. In other words, there's there's a loss of faith for many for many writers, philosophers, thinkers in the later 19th century. and and Pan kind of steps in to provide an experience of the natural and the numinous or spiritual, but without the dogma. And I think that's partly the appeal of Pan. Mm. like uh, writers like uh, like Kenneth Graham in in uh, a piece he wrote in uh, Pagan Papers, Robert Louis Stevenson too. Pan is explicitly contrasted with the world of railways and factories and modern cities. So he embodies like these alternate values in a way he did in the classical world, but maybe even more so because he's anti, you know, he's anti-modern in the sense he's anti-modern technology. He's not, he doesn't belong to the world of factories, trains, and telegraphs. He's connected to the countryside. So these writers offer the imaginative possibility of connecting with the spiritual or, you know, the, the sort of numinous power, but without all the doctrinal and historical baggage of Christianity um, in a way that, you know, can in, include our instinctive, our sexual lives and so on, instead of suppressing them the way that, again, traditional Christian teachings around sexuality and desire and and so on do not. I mean, I think this is the appeal of Pan too for gay writers in in the later nineteenth and early twentieth century. He he represents the potential for sexuality that is is very kind of expansive and inclusive and and doesn't police desire, doesn't police sexual acts the way the law and uh, traditional 
some traditional, you know, Christian teachings had. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I think the he, he Pan steps in as uh, that that old world that uh, Somerset uh, mom is is talking about, you know, cricket and beer and all that is kind of receding into the um, the background. So it makes sense. It's funny because I your your mention of alternative him being an alternative to say technology as we understand it kind of reminds me that I guess the central point of like a shepherd figure is that it's also an alternative to walls and fences that barriers are in fact the opposite of pan or the shepherd figure yeah so speaking of this kind of like openness to reinterpretation I I'm drawn to like Eliphas Levy's I'm just I feel like I'm butchering every name today but it's fine it's just I read too much and don't talk to people no, I think that's no, no that's right but like using using pan as the goat of Mendez right um like yeah where does the sabbatic go because again it because I mean, I think you could make the case, right, that especially if you're writing your big book about how to do high magic, you are you are substituting one dogma for the other. But do you see there's still that like liberatory aspect in like where, where like let's even get to the more basic question: Why Pan? Why is he the one that that Levy kind of comes on to in this? Yeah, I think hmm, I I think it has to do with. I, well, I, so I think it's I think it's complex for first. Fair. Pan is a transgressive figure. He he crosses boundaries. He's not he's not exactly a psychopomp the way you know Hermes is. Like he's not guiding souls from this world into the world of the dead, but he is crossing boundaries between the human and the divine world, the human and the the natural world, you know, the wilderness. And he is also connected with thinking about, you know, Christian responses to, to Pan. He's connected with the old pagan world. Like he's not, it, he's not intrinsically part of the Christian cosmos. He's, he's arguably even a threat to it. And if we think about Pan in the, the later 19th century as providing an alternate source of values to Christianity, we can see Pan as being, um, certainly in terms of perceiving Pan as being in some way opposed to Christian tradition and so on. And and Levy's interesting talk, so we're all familiar with this image of, of Baphomet there with his uh, you know, the flame between the torch and the, the woman's breasts. And he, you know, he's combining, he's combining opposites, right? It's like male, female, good and evil, all the all these, all these kinds of opposites opposites together. And what Levy says about the figure is that he he is pan. He's also, and I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but he's he's also, I think, the Christ worshipped by the secret initiates or something. Like like he there's this idea that that Pan is the secret God who's been known whose true nature has been known only to a few through the centuries. But we can recognize him under these different forms and uh, under these different names, but that he embodies he embodies a, a, a kind of spiritual power that is beyond these these limiting categories we have of you know male female. We don't we don't think about Pan as as the father you know in in Levy sense like he's he's male female he's all these things and so he's transgressive and and Levy is also writing at a time where Pan's image, and I think in in large part because of this this image that he himself created, Pan's form is 
being increasingly viewed as diabolical in some way. Pan is is seen as being connected with the devil. And there is that older tradition going back to Eusebius where all the gods, including Pan, are, are demonic in some way. And so Pan's death was something uh, Eusebius celebrates. But this view that uh, early Christians thought of Pan in particular as the devil because of his horns and all of this is actually a, a much more recent um, kind of 19th century view of things. And I think I think if we we think about the 19th century and the Victorian era as one where, you know, evangelical forms of Christianity really start to, to become dominant in the culture, we can see all these values associated with pan, you know, sexuality and wildness and all this in a, in, in a very literal sense become demonized. And so once again, we have this kind of dual experience of pan in the 19th century where he is viewed by you know, evangelical leading Christians as kind of demonic and then viewed as liberatory and good and and positive by a lot of writers and artists. And I don't know. I mean, I I think Levy is presenting a figure who is sort of beyond those categories. I think that's what he's trying to do with um with the goat of Mendez and Baphomet and all of that. Like he's trying he's he's synthesizing all of those different figures from different ancient traditions and Gnostic traditions and things into this one figure that he also identifies with Pan. If that Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, like he's, he's, he's extending the combinatory aspect of Pan from right. simply God and earth to everything and everything. Yeah. Which in a way is sort of like an extension of, I, I'm suddenly realizing that like one of the, the obvious like parallels with Christ is also as half, you know, fully God, fully man, fully animal, fully thing. But I feel like yes. we've talked a lot about like the, the theory of Pan and I want to get into practice too, because you do some lovely work in this book about talking about like, what are people actually doing to try to do things with Pan? And so like, not to go, I mean, we're, we're sort of in the 20th century, so I really don't, I really want to make sure we get to Diane uh, Fortune, but like before that, you mentioned um, that there were votive offerings, it would seem, of maybe rams or jugs depicted. So are these fairly consistent as pan offerings? I think so. Yeah, the, the, the original offerings would be things like that. As time goes by and pan, pan's form is kind of more universally accepted, little, little statuettes of pan, bronze statuettes of pan have been found all over you know, the Greek world, Crete, as well as Arcadia and, and elsewhere. There's an ancient play by Menander called the Discolus or Grouch, which kind of is kind of organized around a pan ritual. And um, if we're kind of just thinking about how it's um, how he portrays this, it's clear that pan was worshipped at night. Men and women would would come together. The central rite essentially would be getting drunk. <laughs> they would they would go into the cave with they would have a feast in honor of pan. There would be some sacrifice. And the the male celebrants would would drink all the wine, and the women were supposed to kind of look after things and uh, <laughs> while the men drank. and and there's a there's some humor in the play. There's some joking in the play that you know it's the women are more likely to to spend the night drinking than the men here. and but but clearly, it was a time of um intoxication and feasting and sacrifice. and uh, all of those things seem to have gone into Pan's worship. And, you know, there may have been orgiastic aspects to this worship as well, all that we don't have really good records of, I guess, but it would sort of fit into that broader 
ecstatic sort of worship that that is associated with Pan and Dionysus, you know, that that kind of spectrum, if I can call it a spectrum of, of worship there. Yeah, the, so the, the jug is a jug of wine, probably, or something the, like yeah, that. Yeah, the, ju- the jug would have been a jug of wine. And there's another interesting detail that, that appears in Menander's play, and it's that when you're approaching Pan, you have to make noise. Like the and this was different. The other gods you approached with reverential silence and then did the prayers and sacrifices. But when you're approaching Pan, you're supposed to make a lot of noise, like clap your hands and stomp your feet and shout and and carry on, because he likes noise. And that's one of the things said about him in the very early Homeric hymn. He's described as a lover of merry noise in in one of the more common translations. He likes noise. He likes to party you know, um, and, and this was part of the worship of him. So you don't, you don't have this really reverential, quiet silence when you're approaching Pan, but, you know, you, you kind of live it up and uh, make lots of noise. The Andrew W.K. of his day, I guess. Um, so <laughs> right. as, as this evolves, I wonder if that's a dead reference. I'm just showing my age now. Anyway, uh, let's, let's jump to the 20th century now. So Diane, you, you mentioned Diane Fortune and you mentioned in the book uh, Aleister Crowley both having sort of pan-related rituals. And I wonder if you could tell, because I feel like folks are probably not familiar with, because I think when people think Diane Fortune, if they think of anything at all, they think of psychic self-defense, the classic. Yeah. Uh, so it's aged a bit poorly, but, you know, that's fine. Like, so what is what is what did Diane Fortune do with pan? Like, what are what is what is her night of pan like? Yeah, for the fortunes, uh, fortunes pan worship is is interesting. So her nineteen thirty six novel, The Goatfoot God, is is a really it's actually a great it's a great read. It's a really fascinating novel, and it sort of dramatizes the way. I'm not going to summarize the novel here, but it, it dramatizes the way one man named Hugh learns to integrate and get in touch with his own instinctive life and become a more complete person and is able to have a mature, meaningful sexual relationship with someone and get in touch with nature and all these things. Fortune viewed her fiction as kind of serving a an initiatory purpose. That is to say, it, it, she could kind of impart spiritual teachings of one kind or another through her stories. And that is what's going on in the Goatfoot God, but it also incorporates elements of a pan ritual that she developed. And she created this rite of pan, and it's not clear whether or not this rite was ever performed or at least performed publicly. It was published posthumously by Gareth Knight, who was one of her uh, later followers. And her organization, the the Fraternity of the Inner Light, purchased a church in Belgravia that had been abandoned. And they did perform, um, I understand, the Rite of Isis there. There's some record of that. It is possible they also performed the Rite of Pan. That's what Gareth Knight heard, that um, this may have happened. So this would have been a rite performed before probably a small, very select audience. Um, And there were three figures, uh, and these figures kind of have their fictional equivalent in in Fortune's novel, um, you know, a priest, a priestess, and then a high priest. And it's really, it, it's actually, kind, it's kind of a charming and rather innocent uh, rite of worship of Pan. Um, it's sort of celebrating Pan as a god um, of fertility, but all, uh, fertility mainly in the natural sense, like the the 
growing of plants and things since um human fertility a little bit but what it is not is a is a some kind of orgiastic right or uh you know um uh, an excuse to to get drunk or something like that it's actually a very stately it's actually quite beautifully written but it's a celebration of pan as a power of fertility as uh, a power of nature as something that um we should take a, a sort of reverential uh, tone towards and who can really bring us more deeply in touch with the natural world, more deeply in touch with our identities as as men and women. And I think that that's sort of touching on aspects of fortune that have not aged t- terribly well. Her notion of gender and sexuality is very much of its time. She's rather, she, she's an interesting figure. She's She's very open to sexuality and even sort of going in the direction of connecting sexuality and and magic a bit but but she's also a little prudish in terms of gender roles and what you know men should be and what women should be she was not really friendly towards uh, you know lgbtq kinds of identities and experiences but so it's it's a very you know it's a very conventional uh, sort of man woman sexuality that she's partly celebrating in this rite and and in her novel as well. And there's some offerings of grains and things like that, but it's um it's a beautiful rite, I think, but it's not it's not an especially dramatic one. Um and it's quite different from what we hear about Pan's sort of rowdy worship um in the ancient world. I think one feels reading Fortune that she she was actually a little uncomfortable with that kind of rowdiness, I think. Strange to think that she'd even be attracted to Pan at all, given that sort of the whole deal. But I, I have a bunch of questions that readers, or not readers, listeners, because it's an audio medium, uh, submitted. So I feel like I would be remiss oh, if I didn't put them sure. to you. But I know time is also growing short. So I want to make sure before yeah. that all happened, there's something I did want to ask you, which is that, you know, there's there's that famous, you know, William Blake line, you know, you become what you behold. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've been working on this presumably for quite some time, given how expansive it is and how much reading there is had to be so i i am curious have you found in getting this sort of deeper understanding of pan over time that you've been seeing more of say a pan presence in your life in some way or the numinous has kind of been coming forward a little bit more have have things changed for you becoming a pan scholar i would say that yes in the sense that i think i have I do think I have a, a deeper feeling and sense for the numinous when I'm in when I'm in nature, when I'm surrounded by, you know, trees and grass and, and flowers and all those kinds of things. I, I feel I do feel a, a stronger kind of numinous presence than I did before. But I also think that, you know, we're we're also kind of attracted to things that are already sort of meaningful to us in some way. And I've always been I've always been fascinated by Pan, and I, I've often felt that, you know, for we experience that sense of numinous of of you know some something beyond us in different places, right? I mean, we're all different, but for me, the natural world has, although I'm not a great outdoorsman or anything like that, but just being out in nature has always been a, a place where I felt a deeper connection that I felt I was in the presence of something beyond myself something intangible but also very grounded in the life kind of surging around me um and i think that 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 feeling and that awareness yeah has definitely become more kind of 
in, intensified, I would say, since I've been really thinking about this. And, you know, the probably the, the jumping off point for me was reading something I mentioned a few times already, the, the Piper at the Gates of Dawn and, and Wind in the Willows as as a child was like, the, that was the most magical thing for me. I mean, I, that was one of my favorite books as, as a kid, but that chapter in particular was just absolutely magical for me. And uh, it had a kind of, yeah, it had a kind of reality for me, maybe an imaginative reality, but a reality nonetheless that other things I read just didn't really have. So that's, that's always been kind of a central part of it for me. That's lovely. So these these listener questions, some of them I think were offered in jest. So feel free to like bat them away if you want to. But so we've there's a question: What are Pan's preferred offerings in places of sacrifice? It sounds. I mean, we offerings we've sort of gotten into, and it sounds like caves would be the place, right? Is there anywhere else that people might consider for this sort of thing? Um, I think, yeah, the, caves, caverns, grottos, those kinds of of places. There were temples dedicated to Pan in the ancient world, but they're relatively few, and they tend to be around a cave. Like there's a famous site at Banias um, in in what is now northern Israel, the Golan Heights. But it's a it's like a a kind of classical temple was retrofitted onto a cave, and that's really where Pan was worshipped. So those kinds of places, but a lot of us don't have access to to caves, right? So if uh, you know a contemporary person wanted to to honor Pan, I think really anywhere. That feels meaningful in uh, in the natural world. You know, it doesn't have to be a million miles away in a cave on a mountain or something. I mean, I think any any place that the power of nature is really really present for you. You know, and I think in terms of of offerings and things like that, one uh, the, there aren't a lot of flowers and things like that connected with Pan or associated with Pan the way there are for other gods. But one thing that is persistent throughout his mythology and and so on is is pine. The pine tree uh, was sacred to Pan, um, and it was it was recognized as such in the ancient world. It's alluded to in poems and things like that. One of Pan's uh, one of the nymphs Pan pursued was uh, Pitis, which was really just the Greek word for pine. So he has a close connection to pine. That's really the main, I don't know, the main plant. I guess we'd connect with him. That and as we mentioned wine those kinds of things um those those i think are are very close to to pan and the experience of pan yeah loud merry noises and the like um yes so that actually the mention of the of the the, the nymphu is pursued like that kind of links to another question somebody asked and i think because you also uh, for for folks because we didn't really get to it in the interview so much but like for folks who might read the book there's also uh you do talk to like we could say more contemporary practitioners like people who are like alive today and doing things so like this feels like that kind of ties into that as well. Like um, the question was curious about how a practitioner would work with Pan while also acknowledging his nymph raping, chasing tendencies or the theme in general of this kind of sexual pursuit in Greek mythology, which also involves shape-shifting to escape. So like that idea of like Pan as like a kind of almost malicious figure, we might say in that way, like how, like, especially like talking to contemporary practitioners, do you feel like this comes up a lot? Are there ways of kind of integrating this awareness into the work I, somehow yeah i i think it's um i think it is the it's sort of the the this is the problematic side of pan and e even for you know more contemporary writers poets people like that they they tend to they tend to focus on this like some you know recent uh, recent poetry and fiction retellings of the myths have tended to to kind of try to address this because this is the part as much as we want to celebrate pan as a nature god and think about the piper of the gates of dawn perhaps we have to acknowledge that 
in ancient mythology, he is uh, at least a potential or aspiring rapist of nymphs and in earlier depictions, a male shepherd named Daphnis. I think it's it's difficult to reconcile these different aspects of Pan. And I don't have a good answer to, to this question, but I think that there are a couple of things to bear in mind. One is that Pan's pursuit of nymphs, those are stories that are relatively late and literary. So they're found in the Roman poet Ovid, they're found in um, a later poet named Nonus, and so on. So how, how original they are to the pan tradition, whatever original might mean here, you know, how how archaic they are uh, in the pan tradition is questionable. But the earlier depiction um, on an attic vase, for example, of pan clearly aroused pursuing a shepherd um, who's traditionally identified as Daphnis does show us that pan was associated with that kind of sexual aggression and the kind of sexual pursuit. I think one way to think about that is to recognize that pan is in part the embodiment of those kinds of powerful instincts unfettered by kind of social considerations you know he's not bound by considerations of the feelings of others or laws or anything like that i think this is a sensitive and difficult area to sort of talk about some modern psychologists have pointed out thinking about pan as a kind of archetype that pan only becomes dangerous towards nymphs when there's one of them. The the there's a beautiful ancient image I wasn't able to to track down for the book, but it it depicts Pan in the center, and he's surrounded by I, I think it's nine different nymphs, and it's an image of real harmony. Like Pan provides the music, the nymphs dance, and there's this real sort of harmony and balance between them. It's when nymphs are isolated and alone in the wilderness with Pan that this darker more predatory kind of sexuality emerges. And it may be that there is there is some real wisdom in that, thinking about Pan in relation to instinctive life and sexuality, that there needs to be a balance and that, you know, art, music can provide that kind of harmony, that that order that allows desire and play to kind of be in balance with each other so that it doesn't become a predatory sort of force, but I don't. I don't have a real solution. I think it's. I think it's a, anybody who, in whatever way, is involved with or devoted to or or just really fond of of Pan. I think has to find find ways to to come to terms with it. Yeah. Actually, speaking of this idea of like not being bound by laws or rules, another person has asked: Are there any explicit taboos with Pan? Are there any things that I guess very much hard no from Pan on? Right. Anything where, where Pan says no. You know, I I don't think there really is. And I think that that's because uh, I'm, I'm just thinking back through uh, different texts and things and, and rights of Pan. There really aren't. He, he doesn't have a lot of taboos. And I think that it's in, I think it's really interesting that he doesn't. I mean, it sort of connects to not just these areas that Pan is sort of connected to, but even this this deeper sense of God of Pan as God of all, or the way Pan combines the divine, the human, and the animal. It's it is an inclusive. He, he's an inclusive kind of kind of God, and so he he kind of it, it makes sense that he doesn't have things that are particularly forbidden. Um, and I may be I may be misremembering. There may be the the odd thing here and there, but if we think about his fondness for noise, well, he doesn't really like quiet you know he likes he likes noise 
So we may maybe think about that as a kind of taboo, like you don't approach Pan in silence, you you approach him loudly and cheerfully and and so on. So, but other than that, I off the top of my head, I can't I can't think of anything that's really taboo for Pan. Okay, and actually leads to the next question: Does he respond well to Jethro Tull for invoking Sylvan ecstasies? Have you found any reference to Jethro Tull in the classical sources? <laughs> Jethro Tull in the classical sources. Well, I, you know, anything with, with flute mm. or pipe, you know, that goes well with Pan. And, um, and though, you know, that music, you know, Jethro Tull, the flute, all that, you know, in a way that that is itself a kind of invocation of Pan, you know, that's like, that's like a rock and roll invocation of Pan, bring in, bring in the flutes and all that, you know, however playfully or seriously we want to take that, but, you know, you, you have, you have the, the elements right you've got rock and roll you've got the the haunting sound of the flute you know it seems like a good fit to me yeah i mean and what is more transgressive than a flautist somehow getting the first grammy for metal a strange <laughs> and terrible betrayal okay uh what which aspects of pan are the easiest to approach for the generally unfamiliar hmm well i'm i'm gonna I, i'm just gonna go for the obvious and and say i think pan's I think Pan's connection with the with the natural world, and again, you know, when I'm saying natural world, I I want to emphasize that this is like nature beyond the the sort of human controlled kind of nature, like a wild place. You know, any anywhere that it doesn't mean human beings have never gone there before, or that we didn't do something and then life returned, trees started growing, but anywhere that feels kind of untouched, like that feels apart from our ordinary sort of human world of you know sidewalks and buildings and cars cars and all of that um and i don't think you have to run off into the woods i mean you know you're north america we're probably you know fairly close to to a park or something like that where there there may be a little little grove of trees or you know any place that just kind of feels a little wild that feels like a place where animals might live where we can hear birds i think those kinds of places and again it doesn't have to be deep in the woods i think anywhere that just feels a little wild you know i think that's probably the the closest place okay thank you and since you have to go um i really appreciate you taking the time if people want to learn i mean obviously get the book but where else can they go what else can they do to learn more about you and the research that you're doing right now oh yeah you're doing as a poet as well i feel like we should have mentioned that oh yeah yeah, it's been. I haven't published any poems for a few years. I'm putting together, well, so very slowly, trying to put together a little chapbook right now. But you can follow me on Twitter at Paul J. Robichaux. And I'm working now on a, a new book um, looking at uh, standing stones and stone circles and all those kinds of things. And the way those are kind of represented and thought about and imagined, you know, through through the centuries, uh, looking at myths and legends, modern fiction, modern pagan rituals, all those kinds of things. So what i'm up to these days sounds very cool i think their allure has never really gone away there's even like a stephen king short story about about standing stones but that's that's super cool okay so people should check out the twitter i will put a link to the twitter in yeah. the show notes and is there any before you before you have to head out the door is there any sort of last it's sort of traditional on the program to ask like is there any last little bit of wisdom or a last thought or a piece of advice even you want to leave people with before you part ways with the witch hassle world i guess yeah. Um, gosh, I think that um, um, I think that P- 
Pan is, I think Pan is a god that however we understand him, whether imaginatively or more literally, uh, as a spiritual force in the world, Pan is a god I think we we really need in, in our present moment because we think about the environmental and kind of climate crisis challenges we have right now. Pan offers a really positive way of thinking about our relationship, not just to the natural world, but also to ourselves as part of that world, you know, as, as as beings who as separate as we've made ourselves from nature are still ultimately, you know, creatures with bodies, with um, instincts that we share with animals and that, uh, you know, connects us to that larger world of nature. And, and all of that is, is exactly what Pan is uh, kind of presiding over and, and he's the, the power behind. That's really lovely. Thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. This was really a lot of fun this morning. Thank you so much to Paul Robichaud for this wonderful conversation. I'll have links in the show notes where you can learn more about him, buy the book, learn more about what he's up to. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Witch Hassle. Thank you to everyone who supports the show on the Patreon. And of course, thanks to Sebastian Beifestam and Ed Lee for producing the recording that became the theme music for this show. Good luck with the work ahead.